Good morning. Are you vaccinated? Now I'm not talking about Pfizer or Moderna, but now that I have your attention and before I lose any of you, please turn with me to Luke chapter 12. My sermon is titled, Two Antidotes for Hypocrisy. In our passage this morning, we see some very serious language from Jesus. And to give ourselves a little bit of context, if you remember last week, our brother Zion did an outstanding job exposing for us chapter 11, verses 37 to 54, where we saw quite an awkward dinner party. A Pharisee had invited Jesus over for dinner, and after Jesus didn't do their customary washing of his hands, that kicked off this series where the Pharisees were questioning him, and Jesus laid down these woes, these curses, these harsh, harsh words for the Pharisees and the lawyers, these experts in the law, the Torah. And Jesus saw something in their hearts and in their religious practices that deeply troubled him, not just for the Pharisees' sake, but Jesus knows that if his followers do not guard their hearts against hypocrisy, they will just as easily become infected by it. It's a disease. If left unchecked, hypocrisy will spread and spiritually poison the body of Christ in the same way that a virus spreads sickness and death. Luke chapter 12 Verses 1 to 12. If you would stand with me and let's read. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. Or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be said in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Father, I ask that you would take your word now, use it to shape us, use it to 
um, reveal yourself to us, and by revealing yourself to us, may we be captivated by your beauty and your mercy and your holiness and be drawn towards you. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Two antidotes to hypocrisy. With the one big caveat, obviously, the true antidote, capital A, for hypocrisy is Jesus Christ. He alone, faith in him, is what can transform our heart so that what you see on the outside is matched by what has happened on the inside. But Jesus gives two markers of of how his followers should be different from the Pharisees that he was just at that dinner party with. It says, in the meantime, many thousands of people had gathered, that they were trampling on one another. So he's in the context of the Pharisees, and then there's a crowd of thousands, but he turns first to his disciples. This message is for followers of Jesus. This is for believers, and he has something very important to say to us. In verses 4 to 7, he's going to teach us about the fear of the Lord. True Christians, true followers of Jesus have a right fear of the Lord. And then secondly, from verses 8 to 12, we see that true Christians acknowledge Jesus before men. But let's begin in verses 1 to 3, and let's beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware, he says. The first thing he says to his disciples, the crowds can wait. We've left the Pharisees' house. Disciples, beware. Be on guard of the leaven of the Pharisees. You will get swept away if you are not on guard. We are visual people. We are physical people. We are social people. All we can see with our eyes is the exterior. The Pharisees cared very much about their exterior, and that's very effective on human audiences. Beware. This word leaven would have had an immediate connotation in the Jewish audience's mind. If you want to put a bookmark in Luke and flip over to Exodus chapter 12, The children of Israel are in captivity in Egypt, but I am who I am. Yahweh, God, is about to deliver his people. He's about to bring them to himself out of Egypt and meet with them in the wilderness at the mountain. The plagues have started to happen, and the final plague is about to happen. And so the Lord is giving instruction to Moses and the people about what they should do the night of that final plague. And in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 13 are about the lamb and putting the blood on the doorposts. But then verses 14 to 20, uh, look at verse 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Skip down to verse 18. 
In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all of your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. We've mentioned before that in Hebrew, a way that you could add emphasis was by repeating things. That's the way of putting it in all caps, putting it in bold. The Lord gives the instruction about the Passover lamb, but then in the paragraph about the unleavened bread, he says multiple times in multiple ways, you are to eat unleavened bread. And the thing about leaven or yeast is that it's either in bread or it's not. And if it's in bread, it's in all of the bread. And if it's not in the bread, then it's unleavened bread. And the Lord wanted to teach his people about purity and about sin. He was delivering to himself a pure people. Sin is contagious. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Back in Luke chapter 12, verse 2, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. The Lord sees the heart. I'm sure we've all experienced times where we might be on the phone with someone. Perhaps you've been on the phone with your spouse and you start to say something and they say, by the way, you're on speakerphone. The kids, the kids can hear what you're saying. If there's like a surprise you're talking about. Uh, we've seen hidden camera shows. Uh, they're very entertaining where we watch someone who doesn't realize that they're not being seen by anyone, only to find out later, oh, what was done in the dark is now on national television. The Lord sees all things. And not just with physical eyes. It's not just that he is omnipresent and so he has seen everything that has happened everywhere. The Lord looks at the heart. There is coming a day where hypocrisy will be revealed. The end of hypocrisy is that it's unsustainable. There's a very strong eschatological theme through this whole passage in Luke. Verse 3 says, Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Jesus is completely deflating all of the Pharisees' work and, and religious practices. This, this extends past just them and their practices. It even extends to the threats they might levy against Jesus or his followers. Verse 4 says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. This, this paragraph is very interesting because you notice the progression is don't fear them, fear God, and then fear not. That's curious. Don't fear them, fear God, fear not. 
And as tempted as we might be in church settings to use synonyms like reverence or awe or respect, that's not the word that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chose to use. It's the same word every time. It is the word fear. What's going on here? Jesus is teaching us about the fear of the Lord. Clarity is extremely important for us. We see that because the word fear is used in different ways, that there are different kinds of fear. The book Rejoice and Tremble by Michael Reeves has been very helpful for me this week. And he points out that there are three kinds of fears. There's a natural fear, a sinful fear, and a right fear. A natural fear is the fear that we experience living in a fallen world. To live in a fallen world is to be surrounded by danger. It's not inherently sinful. Believers and unbelievers experience this kind of fear. If you're camping in the woods and you come around a corner and there's a bear, there's a right fear that you should feel that will have a physical impact on you to get you to safety. Jesus is speaking of people threatening your life. There's a sense in which it is appropriate to feel afraid for your life. God has given us physical bodies through which we experience life. And if anything harms our bodies, we are hindered at being able to experience the life God has given us. However, we are more than our bodies. And this is what Jesus gets at. Don't just fear those who can kill the body, and after that they can't do anything else. There is something worse than just physical death. It's interesting because natural fears, to alleviate those, you remove the threat. Oh, I see the bear, I run away, I'm safe, and now I'm not afraid anymore. Jesus doesn't remove the physical threat. He doesn't say, don't fear those who could kill the body because they can't really kill the body. Instead, he redirects the fear. It says, don't fear those who can kill the body. There's something worse than physical death. Fear the one who has the authority, the one who gives life. He has the authority to, after you have died, cast you into hell. There is an eternal spiritual death that is at stake. And Jesus' words could lead you to a sinful fear. Turn with me uh, again to Exodus, if you're still there. Chapter 20. The Lord has delivered his people. They have come through the Red Sea, and he has defeated the Egyptian army. And now they are standing before Mount Sinai. He has just given them the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus 20, verse 18, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, 
You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Again, same word every time, but there's a way in which the Israelites were afraid. And Moses said, don't be afraid. Fear God (laughs) that you may not sin. Michael Reeves writes, Sinful fear is condemned by Scripture. I've been tempted to call it wrong fear, but there is a sense in which it is actually quite right for unbelievers to be afraid of God. The holy God is terrible to those who are far from him. Instead, I'm calling it sinful fear since it is a fear of God that flows from sin. This sinful fear of God is the sort of fear James tells us the demons have when they believe and shudder. It is the fear Moses wanted to remove from the Israelites at Sinai. It is the fear Adam had when he first sinned and hid from God. Adam was the first one to feel this fear. And his reaction in that moment shows us its essential nature. Sinful fear drives you away from God. If you don't know Jesus, you might be tempted to pull away from God when you read Luke chapter 12, verse 5. But Jesus doesn't want to scare you away from God. And I know that because the Bible doesn't end with Luke chapter 12, verse 5. In fact, chapter 6 and chapter 7 help us understand what a right fear of the Lord looks like. A right fear of the Lord draws you toward the Lord. The command to fear him is not a threat for the Christian. It is an invitation to rejoice and tremble before the omniscient, omnipotent, merciful God. Even for Christians, we might be tempted to have a sinful fear. Michael Reeves has an extended quotation from John Bunyan, where Bunyan is asking a series of questions to the believer about this sinful kind of fear. He has many questions, and it's in sort of an old English, so I've whittled it down to just a few questions. And I'm paraphrasing to modernize it a little bit. But think about this. Christian, you who have put your faith in Jesus, you who have repented of your sins, when we are tempted to read verses 4 and 5 and feel a fear of God that makes us afraid of him, that would incline our hearts to pull away from him, Bunyan asks, do these fears make you question whether there was ever a work of grace done in your soul? Yes. Do these fears make you question whether you have ever had any true comfort from the word or spirit of God? Yes. Do you not find mixed with these fears the assertion that perhaps what you thought were comforts were actually 
just cultural preferences or plain delusions? Yes. Do these fears weaken your heart in prayer? Yes, they do. Do these fears keep you from profiting in hearing or reading the word? Yes, of course. For whatever I hear or read, I think does not belong to me. Don't these fears make you sometimes think that it is pointless for you to wait upon the Lord any longer? Yes. Many times I have been tempted to stop reading, praying, hearing, or keep company with God's people. Then Bunyan says, Well, poor Christian, I am glad that you have answered me so plainly. But please look back on your answers. How much of God do you think is in these things? How much of his spirit and the grace of his word? None at all. For it cannot be that these things, for it cannot be these things can be true and natural effects of the workings of the spirit of God. No, it is the spirit of bondage. These are not of his doings. Do you not see the very paw of the devil in them? The Christian walk is one that moves toward assurance. God knows all things. He sees all things. We saw that in verse 3. But it's not just that God knows all facts. God knows relationally. He knows all things as the father of the Christian. Yes, he has the authority to cast into hell, but are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. Don't have a sinful fear of God. You are more valuable than many sparrows. The hairs of your head are numbered. Listen to the intimacy of that. Also contrast this with a minute ago, we saw how we are more than our bodies. We have, we have a soul. There is an eternal death that is, that is threatened. But he says, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. He comes down to the physical. He knows exactly what you are feeling, what you are experiencing. The Holy Spirit is our helper and our friend. Fear the Lord, draw near to him. He is good. He is merciful. A sinful fear will lead us away from the Lord, but a right fear will cause us to rejoice and tremble. The way that a groom might tremble in the presence of his bride, it is possible to love and have joy in God in the fear of the Lord. These things are not at odds with one another. This will lead us, secondly, to acknowledging Jesus before others. In verse 8, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And I want to focus for a minute first on verse 10, sort of the elephant in the room verse of this paragraph. 
And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This verse has troubled Christians at times, uh, perhaps wondering, oh no, is there, there is a sin that could not be forgiven. That seems antithetical to the gospel. First, I want to encourage you that probably if you're worried that you've committed the sin that can't be forgiven, you probably haven't committed the sin that can't be forgiven. But secondly, I want to remind you of the broader context. Jesus has just been addressing the Pharisees. And what did the, the Pharisees want, but they wanted people to be religious. They wanted people to believe in God. They wanted people to live moral lives, but they did not want people to believe or obey Jesus. The work of the Holy Spirit is to testify to the good news of Jesus. And so religion, theology, that's devoid of faith in Jesus is not helping anybody. And if you persist in an unrepentant state, that, that can't be forgiven. Pastor Tony Evans says, Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a deliberate, willful rejection of Christ, whom the Holy Spirit reveals. To reject the Spirit's testimony of Christ is to reject the only means God has provided for salvation. You might still be wondering, then why the distinction then between uh, speaking a word against the Son of Man and blaspheming against the Holy Spirit? Well, I will admit, I don't have all of the answers. But in meditating on it, uh, a conclusion I've come to is that it is possible at times, we even see in the testimony of a former Pharisee named Saul, who rejected the Son of Man pretty extremely for a while, ultimately had his eyes opened by a working of the Holy Spirit. I think that it is possible as a person with a thinking mind, hears the good news of Jesus, they might engage intellectually with Jesus and his truth claims and reject it first or ponder at first before the Holy Spirit um, does a work in that person's heart. But I think the broader point of this paragraph is about acknowledging Jesus before others. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. Christians tell the truth about what has happened in our hearts. I loved the way Zion put it last week. Hypocrisy is pretending who you never intend to be. Anti-hypocrisy an, an antidote to hypocrisy is to tell the truth on your exterior about the transformation that has happened on your interior. I even love the word acknowledge. I was thinking about that word and I just went to the dictionary to, to think more about it. And 
there was a section that had kind of the, the root of how we came, came to have this word in our language. And there's an idea of declaring something to be true, but acknowledge also implies making a statement somewhat reluctantly, often about something previously denied, to acknowledge a fault. There's something so appropriate about that. A synonym for acknowledge would be confess. We confess Christ because we were enemies of Jesus. But now, but God, being rich in mercy, we belong to him now. Christ's disciples tell the truth about what has happened inside of us. And they do it in a public way. Whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. We are not headed toward just a one-on-one time with Jesus in glory. We will stand before the angels and Jesus will say of his children, of, of his followers, they belong to me. I bought them with my blood. They are mine. Having Jesus on your side in that day, remembering that hope, that changes the way we experience trials today. Suddenly, any courtroom or throne room we could stand in on earth comes into proper view. Do not be anxious about what you will say, how you should defend yourself or what you should say. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. I think that this is illustrated in the book of Acts chapter 4. The apostles, a, a man has just been healed And in Acts chapter 4, in verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were in the high priestly family. There's a lot of earthly power and authority in the room. And when they had set them, the apostles, in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and people and elders, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Just a couple observations of Peter's response. He tells the truth. There is an honesty. Yes, I am not denying that this man was crippled. He is no longer crippled. But then he clearly points to Jesus. He clearly and quickly points to Jesus. And not just that Jesus healed this man. He points to Jesus and his death and resurrection. In a few brief words, 
It's overflowing with gospel truth. And finally, he uses scripture. The stone and and the cornerstone. He is obviously committed a lot of scripture to memory in that it just flows out of him. I think we can apply these things to us and not take this verse to say, well, the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time, so I guess we don't need to train in evangelism. We just go out, and by faith, the Holy Spirit will speak. I think that would be an abuse of this verse. Church, let's go out trusting the Holy Spirit, recognizing and depending on Him to use our words, but let's speak honestly with those around us. Let's tell the truth about what has happened in our lives. Let's point to Jesus specifically and explicitly. Not just vague church language that's so easy in the South to just talk, but oh yeah, we, we all know. No, Jesus died and rose again, and he has transformed my heart. Let's memorize Scripture. Let's be in the habit of memorizing Scripture so that the Holy Spirit could use it. Let's join the Holy Spirit in His work of bearing witness about Jesus. We've mentioned a few times this initiative where we're inviting people to come to church for Easter, but also any Sunday. I think that is a right and fitting application. We are tempted to only trust in what we can see. Power, intelligence, zeal, physical danger. But trusting only in what we can physically see takes our focus off of God spiritually and inclines our heart toward anxiety. Our perspective of God becomes distorted. He becomes dangerous to us. Perhaps we want to hide from him. Perhaps even we want to hide behind religion, like the Pharisees. May we not pray like the Pharisee, and come to church and say, Lord, I thank you that I am not like the Pharisee. (laughs) Let's recognize the vulnerability of our hearts to a hypocrisy that would want to project a picture of religiousness while our hearts are inwardly doing it out of a slavish obedience to a God that we think is just a cosmic taskmaster. Our God is merciful. He loves his children. He values his children. He sent his son to purchase all of his children. When our hearts are filled with anxiety, we shrink back from testifying to the truth of Jesus and who he is, and what he did, and what he taught and has commanded. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has bought you with his own blood. You are more valuable to him than you know. 
Take your anxieties to him. Fear the Lord and tell the world of the Savior you have met. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would take these words and make them true of us. May we fear you rightly. May we not see a mountain shaking and smoking and hear a trumpet blast and run away in fear. May we instead look forward to a hill with a cross on it and be so captivated by your mercy, your grace, that we tremble. We tremble out of love and joy. Father, I pray that my words this morning haven't left us thinking that there's just a quick self-help way to avoid hypocrisy. These are matters of the heart. Apply your word to our hearts. May we not be hypocrites in our actions or in our hearts. Your gospel work has transformed us once and for all in justification. I ask that you would continue to sanctify us until the day that we are before you face to face and you acknowledge us before the angels. Take us there. Help us. Holy Spirit, help us. Shape us and continue to make us look more like Jesus. Continue to make our insides look more like Jesus so that the outsides are transformed as well. We love you and we praise you for your goodness. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.